Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Why should we stop aging? Today, we talk about everything to do with aging, why it occurs, why there's new interest in it, and what we can do about it ourselves. Sue beautifully lays out the history of longevity research, the origins of this fascinating scientific discipline, and what the latest research means for you. We're taking a short break from the podcast this week, so we're diving into the rich archives of the Doctor's Kitchen podcast to resurface one of my favorite conversations from two years ago. Sue Armstrong is a writer and broadcaster specializing in science, health, and development issues, and author of one of my favorite books on longevity, Borrowed Time, The Science of How and Why we age. Today, we discuss how Sue's career got started, as well as her experience reporting on Nelson Mandela's release from prison, as well as her time spent researching HIV. We also talk about the origins of aging research, the different theories of why we age, the aging immune system and its impact on diabetes, cancer, and heart disease, plus calorie restriction, its pros and cons, and lots more. Remember, you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free, and if you're waiting on Android, you can join the waitlist. The link is on the bio. Plus, in the meantime, you can check out the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter that you can subscribe to in the link in the podcast bio, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and I send you a recipe to cook every single week, as well as some mindfully curated media to help you have a healthier, more informed happier week. On to the podcast with Sue Armstrong. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Thank you so much for coming in, Sue. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, I remember I, just, I was actually reflecting today 
that it's amazing. I'm in such a privileged position where I can read an incredible book and I can invite you, the author, to come down and share a meal with me and then chat about it. Well, it's a great pleasure. I mean, this is a really unusual way of doing it. Usually <laughs> yeah. you sit sat in some um, dusty little uh, studio with somebody talking to you from miles away and it's awful. This yeah. is lovely. And yeah. I get to get a meal as well. You get a meal. <laughs> you get a free meal out of it. So we chatted on the phone. I remember mm -hmm. you saying that you like pomegranates. Um, so I've basically made a meal around that. I'm gonna roast some chickpeas in dukkah. I don't know if you've had dukkah before. No. It's kind of like um, a za'atar. It's like an Egyptian spice blend with sesame seeds, coriander, fennel, um, some cumins in there, a little bit of chili. It's not too hot. Um, I'm gonna roast that with a little bit of oil and then we're gonna build a salad around it. So a bit of smoky hummus on the bottom, some fermented um, pickled uh, onion that I've got here. Parsley, are you okay with parsley? Yes, yeah. Ooh, okay, yes, good. Yes, yeah, because some people, it's a bit, you know. Why it, don't Why don't people like parsley? I th I th so genetically, there is a variant that uh, makes people adverse to coriander. I know. Yes, I know that one. And I think there might be something similar with parsley because it mm. can be quite off-putting, but more so with coriander. Um, but anyway, you're not one of those, no, no, so we're going to go with the, with the parsley. <laughs> uh, and then I'm going to put in some uh, some grilled artichoke as well. Lovely. Sound good? Sounds wonderful. Great, great. So tell me about how you got into broadcasting, because you have done a lot more than just the incredible book about aging and gerontology, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but you've, you've had some incredible experiences ranging from broadcasting about HIV to Nelson Mandela. Um, tell us about how you got started. Well, I got started in journalism. I grew up in a medical family, completely medical family, and I was always interested in medicine, but I always wanted to be a writer. But nobody in my family knew how to become a writer. And they thought, if you're a writer, you, you have to, you know, you're a novelist. And I didn't have novels in me. And so I did all sorts of bits and pieces, and I did a bit of traveling and so on. And then when I was a very, very young mum, I was, had this urge to do it, so I just started writing at my kitchen table and got lots and lots. Along the way, I kept finding people who, were, who believed in what I was doing and gave me an opportunity. And then um, I met somebody who said, well, you know, because I had got two small boys and um, I needed some more work. Mm -hmm. And somebody said to me, you know, the World Health Organization has all these um, articles which are sent in from the field by doctors that need um, sprucing up to put them in their journals and so on. Right. So why don't you write to WHO? So I wrote to WHO and had a great big lump in my throat thinking, this isn't going to work. No, you know, it'll go in the bin like most proposals do. And it just happened to land on the right desk. Uh -huh. And this guy um, got me to do some editing. Then he took me over to Geneva and he became my mentor and he was oh, wow. wonderful. And I happened to be working at WHO when on a um, freelance writing assignment, when the first mention of HIV appeared in that little, that little crusty little journal, what was it called? Um, Morbidities and Mortalities Weekly Report, which oh, is a wow. statistical thing from CDC in the States. Okay, yeah. um, and any really interesting statistics that come out, suddenly they find, you know, there's a blip in something. Mm. So they write a little note at the bottom and say, does anyone know what's happening here? Wow. And this was gay men in California with um, pneumocystis carinii pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, an atypical pneumonia that um, is, uh, well, it's one of the pathognomonic uh, features I yeah, think, of HIV. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so he, um, 
he th th then they'd had this, they'd had this big meeting at CDC and they dumped all the papers on my desk and said you know we don't know what this is but write us something about it mm. so I wrote something about it and you know it then grew and grew and so I stuck with the story mm. and then but I was always freelance and then um, I got involved in lots and lots of things and then I started working for New Scientist magazine, went out to South Africa working for New Scientist, wow. um, always as a freelancer uh, and followed my nose wherever interesting stories came up and that's it. <laughs> wow. Then I came back to Britain from South Africa and um, decided I wanted to do, again, I wanted to do long form stuff rather than just everyday journalism. and. Um, and first one I did was on pathology and pathologists uh -huh. after the uh, problem at the Alder Hay uh -huh. um, debacle, you yeah, know, when yeah. there was the pathologist who was collecting baby organs mm. and so on, retaining them. Oh, wow. I had and no idea that you... Well, yeah, I did. Yes, I did. Well, I did some radio broadcasts on that oh because goodness. I suddenly one of my pathology friends phoned me and said, Sue, look what they're calling us in the paper. They're calling us doctors of death. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the NHS, you know, most people wouldn't get the health care they get without um, pathologists. Yeah. So I suddenly thought, yeah, what do pathologists do and what sort yeah. of people go into it? So I did a, some radio programs and then the Pathological Society came to me and said, your broadcasts were very useful. They, they really changed our image. They were, they were important. Right. What else can you do? And so I decided to do a book for them. So I did that first. So I've stuck with books since then. Yeah. So when was your first book then? My first one was I did, well, I did one on a, oh, I did one years and years and years ago on, for um, kids on smoking and what, what's in it for you, a kids self-help book. Yeah, yeah. That, that was years ago. Uh -huh. and then I did one on a Namibian freedom fighter in the 80s and then I did the AIDS book and I did and then then these last two with um, uh, the aging one and the P53 and the one, P53 on one yeah which um, which we'll definitely come back to in terms of uh, uh, when we talk about um, reversing aging and the important genetic mechanisms that protect us um, but that's fascinating your 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 history and, to, and, and your career has just been spanned so many interesting topics. Well, it has, but I mean, that's, that's the massive privilege. I, I keep on thinking to myself, what a privilege. You know, you can be an extremely nosy person like I am and you get a passport. To, it's your job to go and ferret out stuff. And this just, when I went out to South Africa, new scientists had never had anybody out there during the apartheid years. And so I was going out to South Africa and I said, can I string for you there? So the sky was the limit. There was just any story I wanted to cover, basically. It was wonderful, really wonderful. And you, you were privileged to be one of the few to witness Nelson Mandela coming out I of was. imprisonment. I mean, that, as, as I think I've, I've said before, that just sometimes you, you look back on things in your career, like with the AIDS thing, and I realise, OK, I witnessed the birth of the history of AIDS, yes. and I, none of us knew that we were watching that um, arise, and gradually it did. But with Mandela, mm. we all knew to be outside the prison, this was history being yeah. made there and then, and it was just wonderful. But there was a little bunch of us working with the main BBC correspondent. Mm. And so we were deployed around the place and I was deployed to go and outside the prison. Wow. So um, I was waiting outside the prison when, when he came out and it was an intoxicating moment, as you can imagine. I can imagine, yeah. And that, that must have just been like, it's one of those things that you'll just never, ever forget, I'm guessing. Never. It's just one of those pivotal moments in history. I think it's 
everyone remembers where they are at certain uh, certain parts of history. I remember where I was uh, during the 9-11 incident. I remember even Kobe Bryant recently as well. Yes. I remember who told me. I was actually working in A&E. Um, the weekend when it when it occurred, uh, and somebody told me to check my phone. I was like, "Oh God, it's terrible." It's yeah. what, some of those incidents. Isn't it? Where were you when Mandela was released? Can you remember? Oh, I don't know. I think I was too young. Oh, you didn't? <laughs> yes, I know. Oh my God, that's the young. thing. Yeah, I think my, my parents told me about that, but yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't remember. Because I, I was going to so say when Kennedy was assassinated too. Yeah. <laughs> Kennedy will be a historic figure to you. Yeah, you know, I wasn't there. So just to go back to the recipe very quickly. Oh, already yeah um i've just put uh some leaves around the outside some of the smoky uh hummus with harissa um the onions what i've done is i've uh sliced them in half moons put them in a mixture of hot water vinegar salt sugar um and some fennel seeds and coriander seeds and just just left them you don't need to marinate it overnight it's one of those quick pickles that you can actually leave for about half an hour and it just turns these into like beautiful jewels of red onion, um, some of the grilled artichokes, the oil of which um, is really, really uh, well marinated. So it's perfect for chickpeas. And is that, the, is that olive oil? This yeah, is this is yeah. just olive oil, yeah. Um, and I put those uh, chickpeas in there and when they're, when they're ready, I wanna pop them out. I think they might be ready in a second actually, because you don't need to do too much in terms of the chickpeas, just pop them in. Um, so tell me about how you actually went into gerontology itself. Like what was the uh, triggering interest for this amazing world of reversing aging? Um, I mean, I've got tons of questions I want to ask you, but I'll save that for the second part. Um, but how did, how, when did it actually come onto your radar? Well, I, I did a series of um, radio programs for the BBC on the biology of um, some time back. And I did the biology of addiction, the biology of um, appetite, biology of all sorts of things, biology of stress, and one of them was the biology of aging. Okay. And I went over to the States as you do, because there's all, you know, the National yeah. Institutes of everything over yeah, there. Yeah. And um, I found it very interesting. And when I'd done my P53 book, Bloomsbury came to me and said, um, what would you like to do next? And my first choice was I wanted to write a book about vultures. Uh -huh. Because in South Africa, I became very uh, um, fond of these birds and they are wonderful and yeah. they've had a very bad press. Yeah, and he said, he said to me, well, you know, there's good news and bad news. I love your idea, but I've just, the bad news is I've just signed somebody else up to write about that. Oh, really? So go away and come back with another idea. So I suddenly thought, well, you know, Every day one's hearing about ageing yeah. um, and I had these lovely bits and pieces and I thought that's, that's, that'll be an easy one. Yeah, yeah. Woo! No. <laughs> it, was, it was massive once you get into it. I mean, I realised that it's a, just a, a huge canvas. Mm. And at first I was very ambitious. I wanted to look at the philosophy of, mm. of um, whether we want, you know, of longevity and whether mm. we wanted to um, live longer and, and all sorts of things. So I wanted to look at that. And I wanted to look at the demographics and personal things and the psychology and so on. Then I realized that in fact, there's quite a number of books on, um, could we live to 150? Could we live to 500 years? Could we live to a thousand years? And would we want to? And I thought, um, there's quite a lot already on that, but there's very little that's actually looking inside the body. Mm. And um, I'm always curious about what's going on inside. And getting older myself, you know, I began to get aches and pains and stupid little things. And I thought, what's actually happening? Yeah. So I took a leaf out of um, Gunther von Hagen's. You remember he did that wonderful exhibition, The Body Worlds. Have you yes, seen Yes, yes, I worlds? have. Yeah, I went, uh, this was when I think I was in medical school. 
Um, incredible exhibition. Actually, I do remember when I watched that for the first time because he did the live autopsy on Channel yes, 4. Yes, he did, he did. Um, I don't know if it would be allowed anymore now. I mean, this is when Channel 4 was pretty edgy. Um, and uh, he, he inspired, I think, a whole generation of people to go into medicine based mm. on those exhibitions. I think it still goes on. It does. It? They're yeah. all around yeah, the place. Yeah. And, you know, they were, they were very controversial because people yeah. thought that it was ghoulish because they were real people. Mm. You know, it wasn't just bits of anatomy. Mm. Um, they were real people and he would got this um, special way of, of um, embalming them, mm. plastination. Mm. And it was just so exciting, this exhibition. Um, and it made me realise, you know, you, you've got a pain in your shoulder, you've got a pain in your hip or something, you've got a pain in your kidneys. You don't, re you don't really know where they are if you haven't ever dissected a body. So I thought, well, I'll do the Gunther von Hagen's treatment. I'll peel back and have a look inside. And I found it just the most fascinating quest. I really did. Yeah, yeah. So oh, that's, that's, where, that's where it all came from. Fantastic. All right, I'm just going to grab these chickpeas out. I think they are just about ready. I don't want to get them too And how brown. do you tell when, when they're ready? With just a little bit brown? Just looking at them and the smell and uh, just the fact they're a tiny bit brown. Um, and that's all we're looking for with the salad because I want it to be a warm salad. Um, but they look... They've got a bit of colour there. Yeah, yeah. If you put it in too long, they start popping around your oven and then you've got an oven full of... <laughs> a big cleaning job. Chickpeas. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I remember the um, some of my fondest memories at medical school were um, during... Uh, doing anatomy sessions because we, we were really fortunate at Imperial we actually had uh, our own cadavers that we would um, you know share with essentially about 15 of us um, and most medical schools have pro sections so everything's already pre-dissected and then you know you, you just essentially get guided by one of the anatomy demonstrators um, but uh, you know one of the things that we were taught right from day one is to be exceptionally respectful of yes. the uh, of of the um, cadavers, that there's real people who'd given their bodies for science, uh, and I guess the same thing uh, could be said of um, body worlds as well, because you know people have had donated their bodies for yes. science, and it, it does inspire the new generation, even though it does seem a bit ghoulish. It's you know reality of life, really. It is. Yeah. Yep. Well, when, when I did the pathology book, I actually went to um, Kentucky to the uh, body farm oh, wow. that was set up by this guy, Bill, Bill Bass. Uh -huh. And it was the first body farm where he was putting bodies around um, in, in sort of in nature to see how a body uh, does um, decompose when, you know, after a murder yes, or something like yes, that. Yes, I remember, yes. And I went along thinking, well, you know, he'd take me to his office and we could sit and chat. And he said, no, I'm going to take you to the facility. Oh, wow. And it yes. was wonderful. Really it, was, wow. it wasn't in the least bit ghoulish. It really wasn't. They, as you say, they showed such respect. Mm. And these people had contributed so much to our knowledge about Absolutely, really yeah. important things. Totally. So, yeah, I think, I think bodies are really... Very important things and very, very special things. And, and you have, I have huge respect for the people who are prepared to, um, you know, aid our knowledge yeah, by passing absolutely. the Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, and we will talk about it in a bit, but um, one of the bits uh, where you talk about the uh, Alzheimer's citizen community, essentially people who were responsible and willing to, you know, undergo research, chat to researchers, uh, like the, I think it was the Jenkins family. Yes, it was, yes. Um, and they've, you know, they've been pivotal in expanding our knowledge of this horrendous condition that afflicts uh, uh, 
I mean, millions of people around the world. Um, and that needs to be paid a lot of credit to, I think. Yeah, it um, it's not just about people in labs and doctors, it's actually uh, us as a community. Uh, Absolutely. Together. Well, I mean, look at mm. AIDS as well. Exactly. Just look at AIDS. Mm. I mean, it was so much the activists who pushed the science and yes. helped the science and mm. worked with the doctors and so on, the people who really were on the front line. Phenomenal. Mm. So I think it's very important, actually, to get, yeah, to recognise the contribution that ordinary people have. Definitely. Yeah. Right. This is your wow, uh, salad. So, wonderful. <laughs> uh, just to uh, uh, recap, we've got the um, uh, roasted chickpeas with the daka. Um, we've got tons of things there for your gut health, plenty of different phytochemicals in the greens. We've got some f ferments in there as well, a little bit of grilled artichoke and uh, some pomegranates, obviously. And the phytochemicals do what? What's, uh, what's... So phytochemicals are like my favorite subject. They're literally like thousands of them. I think we've isolated over 5,000 now. And they are essentially micronutrients that we don't recognize as necessary or essential like vitamins and minerals but they are responsible for uh, different processes, including cell signaling, uh, mitochondrial function. They change the function of some of our uh, longevity genes, like uh, CERT ones and, and really? different really? Yeah. Um, there's some incredible stuff that we, we know about phytochemicals, and that's why it's all about nutrient density. It's about diversity and colors. To, to simplify it, you want to get as much complexity into your food as possible. So having two or three different portions of vegetables or fruits at every mealtime is, um, is one of the best ways you can improve your longevity and Absolutely. overall well-being. <laughs> so, and I mean, the, with the calorie restriction mm. aspect of um, longevity, um, the, the, they, they call themselves cronies now because yeah. it's calorie restriction, optimum nutrition. Yeah. You have to make sure that you get all the nutrients. Yes. You know, you're not de deficient in anything because that'll... That'll kill you. That'll cut off your longevity Absolutely, pretty quickly. yeah. Because I remember, I think you talked about in the book where it's not just about calorie restriction. It's actually about um, the nutrient milieu. It's uh, and, and I can't remember the researcher that you or you, you probably know. But um, uh, when you optimize calorie um, content and the energy density of food with nutrient density, then you can have some potential uh, further benefits. How was your lunch? It was delicious. <laughs> really, really delicious. I, I love the smokiness. I love I loved the mixture of things, the crunchiness and so on. And I absolutely love that. What is it called? The, the ducker. ducker. The ducker, ducker yes. yeah. yeah. So really, I'll really pack good. Pack some up for you so you can use that in some of your Because there's lots of interesting little flavours. There was there was aniseed and there were lots of things you could identify separately. It was yes. wonderful. Yes. Really perks it up. Good, good. And I learned about how to make pomegranate molasses yes. for yourself as well. So <laughs> I'm going to be using that in a video later. Um, first of all, I want to... I want to talk about just how important I think it was um, that you injected a beautiful narrative into your writing behind the laboratory researchers because the, for a deeply scientific book, it was absolutely gripping. You know, there were stories of lions, story of like um, uh, Drosophila, the fruit flies with memories. I just thought it was fantastic. And for everyone who's listening and watching as well, it's definitely one of the books that I think was my favorite one of my favorite reads of 2019 that's wonderful to hear i'm glad but i was i will just say the thing about adding stories to it i i found this wonderful quote from um an american astrophysicist called Jana levine and she said and i saw it in new scientist and it sprung out at me i thought yes she said science without storytelling collapses to us uh 
set of statistics and a ledger full of data. And I thought, that's exactly it. It goes on the shelf and nobody knows about it. And science is so exciting. And the people, you know, they're, they're, they're seen as people just in their white coats, just pouring over stuff. They've, what goes on in their minds and their imagination and their ideas are fascinating. And the things that they do, you know, they blow up bits and pieces. And, <laughs> and as you say, they tame lions. They do all sorts of stuff. So I get the backstories of these people because I like to see what brought them into the field they're in as well. So. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's just so important you do that because behind every new character in the book, you do a little bit about, you know, how they look or like, you know, what their colleagues think of them and what their upbringing was and how they went into the field as well. Because aging as a, as a research area is kind of, well, it's definitely had a branding issue uh, up until the last perhaps decade or so. Now it's like the new thing to do. But back in the days where people were looking through microscopes in the 1960s and 70s, it wasn't the most attractive. In fact, like you say in the book, a lot of people were discouraged to go into aging medicine. Absolutely. Um, yeah. they, they, they didn't think there was a future in it for one thing. But the other thing was it was so stigmatized as being associated with snake oil salesmen and narcissism and, you know, people who just wanted to sort of the fountain of eternal youth. And it was pie in the sky. I mean, there were always people who were prepared to pay for that. But that wasn't science any longer. It was myths and, and um, dreams. Yeah. But so gerontology had a bit of an image problem, but it's it's so exciting it's making such um great advances and so on yeah I, there's two things i want to ask you but i want you to answer them at the end if that's all right okay the two things are do you think that uh, gerontology and the notion that we can reverse and delay aging is a narcissistic endeavor that is you know that when people parallel it to climate change, whether that's a good or a bad thing. And do you think lifespan is plastic? I already have an idea as to how you're going to answer those, but we're going to come back to those at the end of this conversation. Um, how do we differentiate real gerontology versus um, the immortalist sort of brand that it's had? Well, I think when, when I started out, I thought that the immortalists and the... Um, transhumanists, I thought they were probably a, a little lunatic fringe and I could have a few nice chapters on that. Then I realised that in fact there are a lot of seriously good scientists who are very keen on that sort of thing. But you can tell the difference because um, the, 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 I mean gerontology has, a, it's a very wide field, but most of the people, what they're selling is the idea of increasing the health span, not the lifespan necessarily. If you increase the health span, sure, you're going to live on to your sort of natural um, age. But uh, that's, that's not the thing. What they want to do is help people to live independent, healthy lives as far as they can into old age. Because at the moment, you may have two, even three decades of really ill health, which is miserable. So what they're wanting to do is shorten that period and keep people in their own homes so that they drop off the perch um, having had a good life. Yeah, absolutely. As somebody said, I want to, I want to, um, I want to die young. I want to die. I want to die young at a very ripe old age. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's that's the message. Really, I, I definitely think that's like the overarching message I got from the book is is that what should that's what we should be aiming for, considering you know the amount of morbidity that we have, the piling off of medical uh, complications and diagnoses that we currently um, think uh, aging is related to at the moment, certainly in the NHS healthcare system. Um, one of the things that I noticed, and I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but you talk a bit about the hallmarks of aging, um, the telomerase issues, the protein misfolding, um, 
And then essentially the chapters are going into each of those hallmarks of aging um, individually and giving the backstory behind that. Was that something that you did intentionally or? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. I mean, <clears throat> what I normally do is I set, set off with an idea and I do huge amounts of research. I get very excited by it. And then I start to write and it, it writes itself. You know, the story sort of evolves. Mm. Um, I think the hallmarks of aging were very good because they were an organizing principle. They were the things because people say, what is aging? Yeah. You know, you look at a person you don't know necessarily how old they are. And so it's it's a bit like time. It's one of the things we all know what aging is until you try and pin it down. Yeah. And so those hallmarks pin it down. Mm. And I think to that extent, they were obvious things to write chapters about, you know, like senescent cells and like um, telomeres and all of that sort of thing. They were obvious things to choose, but it, that wasn't the organizing principle I used. Okay. Well, <laughs> if that, there was one. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it, it seemed like, you know, you, you took us all on a journey through all these different um, features of aging, which, I mean, I feel like just having this conversation with you and reading the book, I've learned so much about a field that I never knew existed when I was at medical school. And just the thought that aging could be seen as a disease that is treatable and have underlying root causes if we can uh, attach ourselves to trying to think about how we treat those mechanisms, then it reveals a lot of ways in which we can treat other conditions, conditions associated with inflammation, conditions associated like cancer, for example, and the uncontrolled uh, cancerous growths. Um, so that's what I find really interesting about it. So the hallmarks of aging, I've got them here because I can't remember them, but epigenetic changes, change in cell communication, inflammation, the buildup of senescent cells. Perhaps we should talk about senescent cells. What are senescent cells and why do they occur? Senescent cells are actually very interesting. They're, 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 they're one of the hottest fields in gerontology and trying to do something about aging. Um, what they are is, um, if you go back to the beginning, you know, how our bodies build themselves and develop and maintain themselves is through cell division. So the cells divide and they create a clone. They reproduce their DNA and they hive off a clone. Now, over the years, because it's happening the whole time, um, these it's very easy for our DNA to make a mistake. And so we have a natural limit to the number of times our DNA can change. And when it comes to the end of that, which is measured by various things, which you can talk about, but when we come to the end of that, the cell senesces. It, it stops dividing any longer. Some of them, but most of them don't die. They, they, they stick around and um, they gradually, they're there for a little while and then they get cleared away by the immune system. So they're there the whole time. And, the very word senescent cells sounds as though this is synonymous with aging. But in fact, we start creating senescent cells almost in the womb, in the development process, because it's part of, uh, you know, you need senescent cells to, you need cells to die so that you can clear them away, so that you can mold um, the body and all of that sort of thing. So development is, senescent cells are part of development as well. But as I say, they get cleared away by the immune system. Um, what happens is as our immune system begins to, um, get a bit ropey as we get older. It's not so efficient at clearing away the senescent cells and the senescent cells stick around and then they start to cause problems because they haven't died. They carry on metabolizing, which is burning sugar to create energy. So they go on creating um, free radicals and damaging things, but they also secrete things into their environment. And this is where the problem lies because some of the secretions are from the senescent cells are what they dissolve the collagen 
collagen. And the collagen is what sticks our cells together and gives us nice springy skin when we're young. And it dissolves that, and that's when you get the wrinkles and the baggy bits. Um, so in a way, I mean, they're, they're an anti-cancer mechanism because if while the DNA is being copied, you make mistakes, part of those mistakes is what evolution is all about. But you can also make mistakes that can be very dangerous um, and even lethal. And so you want to stop cells having the capacity to do that, start with new stuff. Um, so that's the thing. So it's basically an anti-cancer mechanism. And the irony is that when these cells leach out, when they leak the stuff into the collagen and get rid of the collagen in places, they leave gaps in the tissue. And sometimes there's little bits of cancerous cells that are hanging around in the tissue, kept in check by firm young flesh and a strong immune system and so on. Your immune system begins to be a bit ropey. Your collagen is beginning to leave spaces and so on. And some of those cells can grow, which is one reason why cancer tends to be something that spreads a little bit when you're, when you're older. So they're very, very interesting. But one of the things I always find fascinating about biology, it's never just a simple, this does this and this does that. Ex I, that's exactly the point I wanted to, to come on to because we make it seem as if it's quite binary. Like, yeah. oh, senescent cells, get rid of those, those are bad. But actually, like you just said, we need senescent cells. We absolutely do. Yeah. Absolutely we do. Um, what they found is that one of their um, jobs is when uh, you get a wound or something like that, they congregate around the wound and they bring in the healing. Uh, they, they call in the other things to heal wounds and so on. If you don't have senescent cells around, the wound healing is very much slower. And one of the fascinating things is that you look at things like um, some of these amphibians, like the axolotl, you know, which is a little sort of newt thing, chop off its tail or chop off its arm, and it will regrow it again. What they've found is that, and the buds are where you get regeneration of these limbs and so on, you get an absolute cluster of senescent cells. So they have got things that are important. Um, but the problem is, as we get older, that they stick around just too long and they accumulate. They should be recycled the whole time with, you know, with the immune system. And that's where the problem comes. So you don't want to get rid of them altogether. Mm. Uh, you want to, I mean, I mean, some people, I've seen them written about as zombie cells because they do do damaging things. I keep thinking this is a terrible thing to call them because it makes them sound, as you say, just like a bad thing. Yeah. But we wouldn't get very far without them. Yeah. So, you know, so you need to find ways of clear, making sure that they're cleared out fast enough and they're not hanging around too long. Yeah, that's the most important thing. So this is really interesting because I think um, most people will think about, you know, senescent cells, zombie-like cells because of the, the name that, you know, we should be just getting rid of them. But like you just said, with the amphibians who can actually regrow limbs and stuff like that, they cluster around the limbs and then you have these senescent cells and then they get recycled. So it might be an issue with the recycling of senescent cells. And that again, I suppose, goes down to our immune system and the other factors that are responsible for that's right. Well, that's right. There's so, so many, nearly all of these systems, you know, um, so often science goes in, it homes in on a very small area, but you have to sort of stand back and see it. And the reason, you know, senescent cells are fine if they, if they stay just as long as they should stay, when you've got a nice young immune system coming along and saying, hang on a minute, it's your time's up and getting rid of them. But if it isn't, if your immune system is beginning to get a bit ropey, can't find its way to the senescent cells and so on. So it's all of these things working together. That's mm. the thing. I love the analogies in the book. Uh, Richard Farragher, who who has lectured me on the Nutritional Masters 
uh, course that I was on, um, talks about the immune system of old people, like one of those hotlines that you ring up. I just thought that was fantastic. Um, he made me laugh so much. I so enjoyed interviewing Richard. We, I keep listening to my interview and there's loads of peals of laughter because he had these wonderful analogies. Yeah, the, brilliant, the analogy was your uh, young immune system is there to ready in and get rid of senescent cells and clear all the inflammation factors. Whereas in, the, uh, in older age, it's almost like you're getting through to the immune system hotline and you're told to wait and like the immune system will be with you just hold on and you're your, your call is important to exactly. us hang on and then you get some green sleeves music or something you listen to that for ages and meanwhile you've dropped dead exactly, <laughs> exactly yeah so the, the the slow mechanisms behind it the, our immune system might be at the heart of why we see issues um, related to, to aging one of the things that I wanted to talk about was um, uh, your meeting with uh, Judith Camp. PC, I think yes, it was, yes. and um, you've written a whole book on P53. Um, tell us about P53 and its importance to uh, uh, aging in general. Well, Judith Campisi was fascinating because um, she was working in aging science and um, she was working on senescent cells and at one point the people working in aging and the people working in cancer weren't really talking to each other you know they were each working in their own sort of silos and they'd have their conferences and so on and I went to a p53 conference and Judith Campisi was there and she she's the senescent cell lady now as I say um, senescence is one of the mechanisms to um, help us uh, prevent cancer. And P53 is a one gene that we have in all the cells of our body and it's a tumor suppressor gene. And it's one of its chief functions is to parole around and see that when our DNA is being copied to um, when our cells are dividing, that the DNA is copied faithfully. And if it spots that the DNA hasn't been copied faithfully and there's a danger there, it stops the cell and it either calls in the repair team or and, and then it mends it and then it starts, it starts cycling again or it um, decides, well, you really are a danger. And so it can kill the cell and it gets the, kill to, gets the cell to commit suicide, a, a process called apoptosis. So P53 is there doing this job the whole time, but senescence is the one where it stops the cell cycling. And, and so, sen so senescent cells and cells which have stopped cycling, and P50 P53 is one of the mechanisms by which stops them cycling. And so these two things were very, very important. And the, the cancer people who were looking at P53 suddenly realized, yes, um, aging is just the other side of the coin. It's the price we pay to keep our cells, to, to, to prevent cancer and so on. So it was fascinating. And I met Judith at, at the P53 conference. And then when I started doing this, I thought, wow, I'll go and see her again. She's a most impressive lady. Yeah, she the, really the way you describe her in the book is, you know, a, a very mild-mannered, softly spoken woman. Uh, and I remember just thinking, imagining like what she, she speaks like. And then I watched an interview with her, actually, with Dr. Rhonda Patrick online. And it's, she's exactly how I imagined. You have this crazy ability. But she's also, she's, she's lovely and graceful. She's sort of like a ballerina. She's lovely. <laughs> she's got this halo of lovely dark hair. She was wonderful. Yeah. And, she, and, and so bright, you know, and she... Mm. she just told she was brilliant at describing how all these things work. Yeah, yeah. And so how does that um, relate to, um, I think I remember you talking about P21 and all these other sort of genes. How, how does that relate? It's all, the, these, P21 is another one in, in the sort of, um, P53 is the center of a hub. And what they reckon is, and I don't know whether this is still 
current, whether this is what they still believe, but it's, it's the key tumor suppressor. And so it gets fed signals from above, which say, hang on, we've got something bad happening here. P53 goes and has a look. Then it um, calls in a whole lot of other genes. And if there's something messed up with the network below or the network feeding into it, then you can get cancer. But if P53 is doing its job absolutely right, um, you shouldn't be able to get cancer. But there's all kinds of things in the network that can go wrong and, yeah. and stop P53 doing things right. Right. Um, we talked a little bit about calorie restriction before. That, I think, has hit the headlines and people are generally aware, like eating less may be related to increased health span. What is your overall sort of message about the whole calorie restriction community? They, they sound wonderful, first of all. I remember you talking about um, the Biosphere Project with on the professors who, you know, in the name of science, restricted calories for this incredible experiment in the middle of the they Arizona. They didn't intend Dems. to do it. They didn't no, intend to do that. Didn't. <laughs> they had to do that survival, right? Yeah. No, yeah. well, um, calorie restriction was, um, it had a very long history. It went back, I think it was the 1930s. There was a guy working in, now I can't remember his name. He was an American guy working in um, the uh, agricultural sector, I think. And he was looking at um, animal health and so on. But he restricted the calories of rats. And he discovered that if he had some rats all in a cage, if he gave them a specific diet, if, which was you know, full of the right nutrients, if he restricted the calories of some and just let others eat as much as they wanted, the ones with very restricted calories, eating an optimum diet, but very restricted calories, they lived a lot longer than the other ones. Mm -hmm. And so he thought this was an interesting thing. And, other, and it was a, a flurry of interest. And then people didn't get really interested in until sort of 50 years later, um, Roy Walford, who was the professor of pathology, a, a very eccentric prof very professor of pathology, hey? pathology <laughs> in the States, in one of the universities in California. He cottoned onto this and he looked at it. And people by that stage had found that if you calorie restrict a worm, one of the little, you know, the, the model organisms that they use in labs, the worms, the mice and the fruit flies and so on, you made a huge difference. With the worms, you could increase their li lifespan tenfold. With the flies, they could do it fivefold, I think it was, or, or twofold. With the mice, it, you could give them an extra 50% life. And they did it also on macaque monkeys. But Roy Walford wasn't waiting for the macaque monkey research. He said, you know, what works for mice and rats and all these other things, I'm sure it'll work for me. So he started restricting his calories. And he went around with a, a very, very low calorie diet and very aesthetic and so on. But then he was asked to be the um, medical officer on this experiment in the Arizona desert where they built a sort of terrarium. And it was supposed to be a self-sustaining um, ecosystem. And it was supposed to um, mimic what it would be like to be live on Mars or live on the moon or something terrible like that. <laughs> <laughs> and the systems were all supposed to feed a feedback loop and they grew their own food and they, you know, they had, um, they breathed and they got some animals in there, but they had plants which would change, you know, taking the CO2 and so on. So it was all supposed to be self-sustaining. And of course, it didn't work out like that. They went very short of oxygen, down to about 14% of what they should have. So they were all a bit scratchy. <laughs> and their food, they weren't very good at producing their food. And so they found themselves, Roy Walford had to restrict their calories very much. And there's a wonderful picture of them that I found where they're all sort of pouring over this very, very depleted looking dining table and thinking, yeah. what can we eat? And they're all very thin. Um, so it was a it was an enforced experiment, and but what he he then sort of checked their physiology and he said it was absolutely 
absolutely fascinating. He found very much the same thing that they found in the rats and the mice and the worms and so on, that all kinds of measures were really, really good. Their, their sugar um, control, their, um, just lots of things were really good. And so he reckoned this really worked. And um, Roy Walford wanted to live to 120 years, but terribly sadly, he got motor neuron disease and he died in his mid-70s. Anyway, the, the, he, so he was the sort of poster child for, for um, calorie restriction. And now there's a huge community around the world, not huge, several thousand people around the world, and they all um, eat very little. I mean, they, They're called the cronies, is that? They're yeah. called the cronies. The cronies calorie yeah. restriction, optimal nutrition. Gotcha. But, I interviewed one over Skype in California, and I thought it was going to be a dreary interview. I thought, you know, he'd be a, he'd be a bit of an evangelist and so on. Yeah. He was wonderful. He was terribly funny. He didn't take himself too seriously. And I said to him, you know, it's not a very social sort of thing, a few lettuce leaves and a bit of lemon and so on each day. Um, have you made friends? And he said, well, I, I lost quite a lot of them because he said I was an evangelist at the beginning and really? I would bend anybody's ear. And he said, I, you know, a lot of them sort of crept away. But he was very funny. But he'd been doing this for some time. But um, just, just before I think I interviewed him, the results from the monkeys, the, the macaque monkeys came in. And it, of course, ma macaques can live to sort of 30 years. So it was a very long time. They, um, they needed to do the experiment to see whether it actually increased their lifespan. What they found was the bad news was it didn't increase their lifespan, but it did increase their health span. They, they fell off their perch at the very end. And the same with the flies very often, or, or the mice, very often they died at a ripe old age, you know, sort of maximum lifespan, but not more. Um, they died at a ripe old age. You couldn't tell what they died of. They, there was no pathology. So, you know, something had gone. Maybe they'd run out of stem cells or whatever. But um, so he thought this was really, really good news. So the guy that I interviewed in California, this was just before um, Thanksgiving, and he said he was going to enjoy Thanksgiving this time, but he was going to keep lowish calories, but because what they discovered was uh, you don't have to eat a, a really Spartan diet, but you need to be careful of your calories and so on, but it doesn't need to be sort of half starvation type thing. Yeah. So he could let up a little bit. But so, so just looking at your nutrition, and you'll love this message, looking at your nutrition, making sure you get the right things and not too much of it, don't overload your system with having to sort of detoxify and get rid of too much stuff. Um, works wonders and you can it really makes a big difference so that's where you get the biggest bang from your buck good nutrition um, moderate portions and so on but not not too Spartan so you can enjoy yourself what what's become quite popular in the fasting community uh, I think uh, or just generally people who are biohacking or try to optimize the nutrition uh, three levers um, I'm quoting dr. Peter Atia whose uh, podcast I listen to religiously uh, of calorie restriction dietary restriction and timing restriction. So calorie restriction would be energy control. Dietary restriction would be, you know, not eating crap food, basically high, poor quality fats. And um, in some cases, yes, lowering refined carbohydrates, etc. cetera. Uh, but also timing restriction, which goes on to circadian rhythm disruption. Uh, yes. And I find that super interesting. Have you, yes. have you looked into that much? Or? I, well, I, I, I tripped across that while I was doing the research because uh, there's um, an Indian uh, neuroscientist, actually, who, he's a gerontologist mm. at the Buck Institute in California. Dr. Rao. Dr. Rao yes. yes, Ram Rao, wonderful. And he was telling me all about
about this and then I've read up quite a lot about it. But he's very strict about that, that you should not eat, you should have sort of eight hours between your last meal at night and your breakfast and so on and you should keep to some of these things and you shouldn't have your big meal at that stage. But, um, and I was very interested in that and I've read quite a lot about that and the same thing with the guy who is actually managing to have some effects in treating Alzheimer's. But um, it's terribly difficult to follow. It yeah. really is. It's, it's a lifestyle change that I've found too difficult because I tend not to stop till quite late in the evening yeah. and I, like, I don't like to have a big meal at, at lunchtime particularly. Yeah. yeah, I think that would be quite off-putting for most people who you know, will live a lifestyle which involves office work, which yes. involves not having a kitchen in the middle of the day. I'm very yes. lucky to have one most of the days when I'm not working in any. Um, the, the general sort of advice that I give to people is to eat in a general window. And that can be starting off with 12 hours, uh, if you like, or 12, 13 hours. If you start eating at eight, then finish eating by 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. Really? That's what you suggest? Yeah, as a mm. general rule of thumb. And what that does, I think, inadvertently, is just make sure that people aren't eating out of boredom. Because if you're sat in front of the TV yeah. and it's 9 p.m., feeling peckish, you've had dinner maybe an hour or so ago, you're going to reach for the popcorn, you're going to reach for the sugary snacks and stuff. If you know and you're strict with yourself about, okay, well, I'm not eating now, then it probably reduces your energy consumption. So inadvertently might be having those effects. But I think there is definitely something in time restriction. Absolutely. There's the, there is a synergistic effect between those three elements. Absolutely. There's no question of that, at least from what I've read and from what I've heard. But as I say, I find... With all of these things, um, the messages are things that we've heard over and over, the same with exercise and so on. But what I found interesting when I was actually looking at it is we hear these messages and there's so much noise, they get contradicted and so on. What we don't often hear is the biology behind it. And that's what I was really looking at. So I was looking at the biology of the um, calorie restriction. I was looking at the biology of um, exercise as well and it's not just building up muscles it's keeping your immune system healthy and all yes. of that sort of thing so there's a lot of you know sort of ah that's why I've been told to do that that was the message that came and across. it was really interesting uh, the bit about Dr. Ra because he's trained in Ayurvedic medicine which yes. I need to I need to look into a bit more it's, it's definitely my heritage it's definitely something that influenced me um, through my mum when I was overcoming my own uh, medical issues that we spoke about before um, but a lot of the principles within ancient medicine I think are sort of coming full circle where beginning to understand what we knew intuitively perhaps thousands of years ago which I find quite it's just interesting. It's quite, it is fascinating. Yeah. It, it really is. Um, and it's interesting what Ram was telling me. And he got really sort of um, excited about the whole thing because he realised I was very interested and I am interested because I come from a very medical background myself. But my dad, years and years ago, started talking about holistic medicine. It was always with in inverted commas because, you know, it wasn't a mainstream thing then. And this was looking at how everything works together. And um, at that stage, I had just given birth to uh, to babies and I had done some psychoprophylaxis which is trying to ease um, deal with the pain without taking lots of gas in there and lots wow. of petadin and things okay. like that and um, 
and it was brilliant. And I was so skeptical beforehand. I thought, this is a load of old baloney. But I went <laughs> along with it, you know, having a little giggle behind my hand, me and my husband, um, at the sort of evangelist who was teaching us this stuff. And it worked like a dream when I came to the actual childbirth. And so my dad got very interested in that and meditation and so on. And so he started to suggest meditation to his patients and things too. How progressive. So this was a long time ago. So I'm interested in um, some of the things which, uh, not everything, absolutely not everything. And I'm sort of super skeptical of just embracing them all and dismissing uh, rational scientific medicine, um, Western medicine. Um, but I think one needs to have an open mind. And the interesting thing about Ram was he said that at first his wife, they moved to California and she couldn't get satisfaction for her health problems. So she wanted to go to an Ayurvedic doctor. And the Ayurvedic doctor said to her, said to Ram when he came along with her, you should study. He said, no, 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 no. I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a Western trained. No, no, no. And then he said, well, we've got a course at the weekend. Why don't you just pop along? And he popped along and his mind really opened. But he and this other guy, who was also one of the top gerontology um, neuroscientists in the States, I think he'd been the director of the Buck Institute of Aging at one oh, wow. point. He got very interested in this. And he found that when he started talking about this sort of thing, you know, it was really difficult to get funding for it because it's seen as fringe and it's, it's seen as snake oil stuff. So again, you're up against this sort of stigmatized thing. Yeah. But personally, I haven't anything to lose by keeping my mind open, though um, I think you can go too far. Yeah, I, I, I totally you have agree. To, you have to keep your critical faculties, but 100%. don't close your mind to it completely. Definitely, yeah. And I think, I think that's incredibly progressive of your father because we were talking over lunch about how he was a tropical medicine specialist and then went into general practitioning um, thereafter and your experiences in Sudan and, and all these different places around the world. Um, but for, for someone back then to be talking about meditation and these yes. holistic practices, I mean, that's incredible. It was. It, he, 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 he was that sort of, he had that sort of mind. He was very curious about all sorts yeah. of things. And, you know, um, I think one of the things, and you probably find this very much as a GP, that it isn't just the science. I remember my dad actually wrote an article, and I was at WHO at the time, and we used to get articles that had been in the paper and so on and put them in the journals. And my mentor at WHO would gather these things, and he took this article by Dr. Peter Abbott, and he said, look at this. It's a fascinating article written about the art of medicine. And um, he said, I think we should see if we, we'll write to the author and see if we can put this in our journal. I said, um, I'll write to the author. I said, I'll phone him if you like. And it happens to be my dad. <laughs> because it really was about what does the patient feel is wrong with them? What, 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 it, what are their beliefs about all this sort of stuff? And so you need to, it needs to be a dialogue, a real dialogue with yeah. the other person's superstitions or understanding and all of that sort of thing so dad was really into the art of medicine as that's well that's amazing as i've definitely got to read that and um if i haven't come across it it sounds something that i may have already read maybe a few years ago um but that that brings me on to a point actually about um pediatrics um i'm taught by some of my really respected colleagues in pediatrics to trust the intuition of the parents um, the mother, if they know there's something wrong with the child, don't brush it off. It's not always it, the, the child could be presenting and they might be they might look fine to you. Their observations might be. But there's something off. Just look into it a little bit. You never know. There could be something there. And I think it's this sort of like intuition that we can't quite tangibly quantify 
but we should respect. Absolutely, and, absolutely. And that, that really does speak to me, even in clinical practice and A&E as well. I mean, in everything, and geriatric medicine and gerontology, or, I mean, right the way through, if, if the people who know a person very well are uneasy about something, it's worth listening to them until they become a, a real pain in the backside. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually brings me to a point about, um, so there's two things I want to talk about, nutrient sensing genes that we're talking about in a second, but the story about the patient with uh, Wegner's, um, Wegner, sorry, uh, the, the, the condition where they uh, age uh, very young. Werner's. Werner's, sorry, Werner's. Yes, yeah, yes. I'm thinking about something completely different. Werner's syndrome. Werner's syndrome. Um, and how, I think it took him till to his 30s to get the diagnosis. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Yes, I mean, Werner's syndrome is, a, is, is really, really sad. It's one of these um, uh, premature aging conditions. And literally, you, you start to get all the sort of symptoms of aging. Not all of them. This is why it's just, um, you, you get a lot of the symptoms. You start to get arthritis. You start to get heart problems. You can even get sort of dementias and things like that very early on. And um, but this guy that I met with Werner's, uh, he said that he he, he, he loved to run. He, he was a, he loved to do sports and so on. But he'd get absolutely crippling things with his knees and his joints and so on. And he had a whole lot of and he had diabetes as a very young person. Nobody, uh, you know, whenever he went for checkups and so on, they would he'd go to a rheumatologist or he'd go to a, di a dietitian or something. All of these different people would note would find something wrong with him, and they'd give him tinkering around with bits and pieces. But he could never get satisfaction. He went to a doctor at one of the um, at his bus at his workplace. They all had a, um, a, a an MOT from some doctor, and she was just very wise. And she said, I wonder if all of these things are related, if, the, if we're onto something here. And sure enough, and I can't remember exactly how he found out. I think he had to have, um, he, had uh, he had a gene test, yes. Yeah. And, they, and they found it. But, you know, too often that's the, that's the story. It's, they're focusing on an individual symptom and not seeing the big picture. It really did resonate with me because I think that spells out a lot of what we do wrong with modern medicine. There's a lot of things that we do right. I'm not discrediting that at all. But what we do wrong is siloing symptoms and giving individual diagnoses as if that's going to change it. And I think I remember from the chapter, you know, he got the diagnosis and was like, oh, and there's going to be something that we're going to do about it, right? But actually, it comes down to this issue of treating aging like a disease. And we don't actually have that many treatments we just treat the things individually but um the issue about treating symptoms uh, in isolation i think is something that that mars a lot of what we do as western medical uh, practitioners um and for someone to have waited that long yes it leaves a bit of a bad taste in my mouth it does yeah. it's terrible and i think i mean one of the fascinating things about you know he had a lot of the different um, facets and the pathologies of aging. And so they were all looked at separately. But actually, to a great extent, that's been one of the problems with geriatric medicine. You've got the person who will deal with your Alzheimer's, the person who will deal with your diabetes, the person who will deal with your heart, the person who will deal with your joints, the person who will deal with your bones, not looking at them all in one. And one of the clearest messages that came from my book, which I found absolutely fantastic was that the single biggest risk factor for that whole panoply of geriatric diseases is the aging process itself. So if we can come, you know, the, they're the branches of the tree, the roots of the tree are the aging process, your um, immune system that's getting old, your um, senescent cells that are accumulating, the inflammation in all sorts of things, 
all of these things. Um, so if you can treat, if you can find a way of slowing that process or ameliorating that process, you can actually affect all kinds of things. And that's what comes, you, you mentioned earlier something that I know will probably set a lot of your listeners really <laughs> their, their teeth on edge when you say, you know, aging is a disease, yeah. because we're all getting old and it's terribly stigmatizing. And it's inevitable. You cannot stop time. But what you can do is perhaps slow the, the process itself. But it's very provocative, the very idea that aging might be a disease. But when you recognize that it's the root cause of all of these other things, and that if you can do something about the root cause, you can actually prevent or ameliorate a lot of the other things, then it makes sense to look at it as a disease process in its own right. Because up until now, um, pharmaceutical industry isn't interested in an anti-aging pill because so what? It, it sounds like it's just a sort of cosmetic thing. But if you can label this as, if, if this is something that the NHS says, yes, well, we can do something about it at this stage. Um, if, if it's labeled as a disease, it's then something that's worth intervening in. And big pharma are the only people with the clout to actually go after those kind of drugs. So, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I hate the idea of, pathologizing old age or medicalizing old age. But if it's going to um, release the logjam of people wanting to actually translate what they've learned about gerontology into something that's going to affect all those or prevent or ameliorate those other diseases, then it's worth looking at how, how we call it and whether it is a process that we should be intervening in. There's so much of that I really want to unpack because I think right at the start of your book, when uh, Richard Farrago is talking about the amount of money spent on aging as a, or a yes. issues with aging, it's it's pitiful. Uh, pitiful. Considering the amount of money that we spend on treating illnesses yeah. of old age. Well, what I is think it? Isn't it something like? Well, isn't it? 0.03 billion, I think, spent on uh, the research. On the research. Yes. But th what is it? Is it a third? Is it? It's nearly it's a well half over a third. Of, yeah, of, yeah. of the of the um, NHS budget goes on people over the age of sixty-five. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got this massive need, and we're, we're people haven't the policymakers and the funders haven't cottoned on to the fact that this is where the research needs to be, not on each of the individual pathologies, but on the root cause. Yeah, and dig a little bit deeper, and this is why I'm so passionate about food, uh, and we really should be looking at our lifestyle and food as medicine, because medicine being the um, uh, use of uh, interventions and, and substances to prevent as well as treat illnesses. Um, we really need to be looking at the foundations of how we actually uh, uh, prevent a lot of the illnesses that are burdening our healthcare systems globally, Absolutely. not just in this country. Um, I want to go on to back to calorie restriction because it brings me onto the topic about nutrient sensing genes. Um, I think it's become quite fashionable to talk about FOXO and uh, the other nutrients. It comes from the DAF2 gene that I think was isolated in the worm. Um, yes. But uh, tell us about FOXO, because I find that whole that whole uh, area of nutrient sensing super, super exciting uh, and the different lifestyle factors that we can do to turn on these nutrient sensing genes. Well, FOXO is 
a very big part of what's called the nutrient sensing mechanism. And just in its simplest way, it, this is its job. And I'm not sure that it's FOXO itself. There's a whole lot of them yeah. and I can't remember exactly which gene does what, yeah. but it's part of an absolutely crucial nutrient sensing mechanism, which is always looking to see what fuel comes in and how best to spend it. And this is why, um, this is one of the things they think is so important in calorie restriction, that they reckon if you've got um, a, a low, low amount of fuel coming in, then your body will say, well, we ought to divert this towards maintenance and um, upkeep of the body rather than laying down fat and that sort of thing. So this is super important. And yeah, so basically, it's a, it's a mechanism which will allocate the resources as they come in. And it's just crucial to everything. Everything we do, uh, every way our body works, goes through that system and it gets you know, its own resources allocated by that system. So it's very, very important. But as you say, um, when they were looking at the genes which do increase longevity and the longevity genes, there's one or two of them. There's, uh, yes, DAF2, and there's one which they call age one, the first one they found, which they tinkered around with that and they found they could increase the um, lifespan of worms and so on massively. And people got very excited by that because they realized that it's not just wear and tear, which a lot of people had just thought um, aging was a question of we've been around a long time, you know, buffeted by the weather and the what we eat and stress and all sorts of things. That's what aging is. But they realized it does have, um, there are a lot of genes sort of regulating it as well. Yeah. And that was, and w when they tinkered around with some of those, just some individual genes, they managed to make huge differences in these animals. But then people sort of step back and they see this, it comes out in the media and they think, oh, wow, can they do that for humans? Well, you can't do exactly that, just tinker around with some of these genes. Even if we've got the same ones, you can't tinker around with your age one and keep you going to 500 or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or 10 times as long as you might live. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's quite fashionable to think, oh, if I just upregulate this particular gene. Whereas actually in reality, that I think you said in the book, there's over 300 different yes. genes that are related yes. to lifespan. Um, well, that's, that's the thing. But they reckon that um, 25 to 30% or something of your lifespan, your natural lifespan is, you know, down to the genes and the rest is, uh, you know, your environment and the interaction of your genes and that sort of thing. So the genes do have a role to play, but so many things have a role to play. That's, that's the truth. But this nutrient sensing mechanism of which FOXO is a massive part is one that they really as you say, they're focusing on some of those really important genes yeah. in that. One thing I find quite interesting about the whole lifespan gene theories, well not theories, but you know, the, the whole nutrient sensing mechanism is that in reality, um, they only represent sort of 20%, I think, of lifespan, whereas the rest of it is all about your lifestyle, which makes me quite excited because it's not as if your uh, lifespan set is set from birth, uh, as we were sort of led to believe when we were, you know, we just encoded the human genome. Um, there's a lot that we actually have within our control using things like color restriction, some other uh, elements of life that we'll probably go into later. Absolutely. But th this whole debate about um, our maximum lifespan, yes, our genes give us, you know, if you come from a family of, of long-lived people, it tends to be you've got the genes um, are working in, yeah. in, in your favour. But um, there's a huge debate as to whether there is a natural 
limit. And you know, there was this woman in um, um, in France, Jean Calment, uh -huh. or whatever her name was, and who died at 120, 126 or something. And they reckoned that was the upper limit. And there was big debate about if you keep the body healthy, can you go on a lot longer than that? Can you override, not override it? Is, is that really the natural lifespan? And no, it, it hasn't been resolved. It really hasn't. There are people who are passionately think there is an there is a maximum lifespan and there is and people who think that no if we can easily override that by lots of healthy health and all of that sort of thing yeah because i remember you go into the arguments actually back like you know i think it was in the 1950s or you'll probably be able to correct me about how we used to think if you give a cell uh, a, a perfect environment, a nutrient-dense medium, you can allow them to live indefinitely. But actually, uh, that's not the case. And there's a, there is a set point, isn't there? I think there is, yes, yeah. yes. Now, that, that's actually a fascinating story. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, okay, there's a lot of um, hocus-pocus in, in uh, you know, Eastern-type medicine, or this is what people are worried about. There's a lot of hocus-pocus in all sorts of things. But there are also lots of little dogmas in science and in medicine. And one of them was um, Alexis Carell, okay. who won a Nobel Prize. Um, and he was a, he had ostensibly kept the cell of, from a chicken heart alive in a test tube or in a Petri dish for years and years, for decades. Yeah. That's what he said. Yeah. And so the, 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 the idea grew up, the dogma grew up, the um, received wisdom was that these cells will go on and on. They, di they divide, you know, they were dividing and dividing and dividing. They were dividing cells. that They will go on dividing forever, as long as they've got the right temperature and the right medium and so on. But what? Then you got this guy, Leonard Hayflick, who came along, and he was a cell biologist, and he was working in Philadelphia. And he was a really seriously good cell biologist, and he was creating cell lines for that they were working on vaccines for viruses. And he noticed in his lab that all of the cells they would go for so many cycles and then they would stop. And he did this and did this and did this. And he said it looked as though this was a natural thing. It, he was doing nothing wrong with his um, uh, medium or anything like that. So he started to get really interested. So he put out this paper that cells have a natural lifespan. And then after that, they will stop dividing. And this was such um, a challenge to the dogma that, but what they discovered, he turned out to be absolutely right, but he couldn't get his paper published for a long time. And then in the end he did. And of course it's now well known that the cells do have a finite lifespan and they do then senesce. Um, but what, 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 what they discovered was when it finally did come out, what had happened was the Alexis Carell, of course, was not um, doing all his own experiments. He'd got this team of lab technicians and apparently they were finding their cells dying after a certain time. They thought, oh shit, you know, this is not what's supposed to happen. I must have done something wrong. I've got the temperature wrong or I haven't put the right medium in. So they'd just change the cells and right. go on and on. And Alexis Carroll would come in and look and just assume it was the same cell. <laughs> <laughs> just so, hadn't dared so, admit it. So the laboratory staff were literally changing They themselves. were, <laughs> yes. But I presume they were doing it individually rather than saying to their pals, I've done yeah, this, because exactly. they thought, you know, I've slipped up, so they didn't admit it. And then Leonard Hayflick came along. And the great thing is now it's recognised that cells have 
and I think they have varying ones depending on the different tissues and so on. But uh, this is known as the hayflick limit. They reach the end of that hayflick limit. And that's where, and then people say, well, how does it know when it's come to the end of the limit? And that's where you get your telomeres. Yes, yeah. And that brings us beautifully on to your incredible interview that, did you meet Elizabeth Butler? I didn't, I didn't meet her, no, unfortunately I didn't. There was one or two people that, that, you know, I couldn't get round to see them all, but there was lots of material because she'd won a a, a, um, Nobel Prize. And the Nobel um, site on the website is wonderful because you have a wonderful biography, you have interviews with the people, you have their speech to the Nobel people. So it's really super good. But um, people then say, well, how would a cell know when it had reached the end, when it had reached the Hayflick limit? And what we've got on the end of our chromosomes is these little um, things called telomeres. And they're, they, somebody has described them as like being, being like um, the caps on the end of shoelaces. They're little caps on the end of your chromosomes. And every time your DNA um, copies itself, a little bit of this gets chipped off and the telomeres don't get copied. They get chipped off. When they get, they're they're protection for the uh, chromosomes. When they get too short to protect the chromosome adequately, then the cell knows it's time to senesce. And so it doesn't divide any longer. But then people were wondering, what it is that keeps the telomeres going and uh, and all of this sort of thing. And Elizabeth Blackburn was the person who found this. And this is absolutely fascinating because then they found an enzyme that um, will, w- that you can repair the telomeres. And so you can ostensibly override the senescence of cells with this stuff. So, so, you know, all of these little bits and pieces come into the picture and it's just fascinating. And that's what I love about following these stories. You find yourself thinking, well, I wonder how that works and why such and such? And then you you get the opportunity to go and speak to these people or phone them or read about them. Totally, yeah. Because like the way the story, it it feels like a story because you've written it. It was almost like it's this novel and you're discovering things. It's fantastic. But if someone was just going into, you know, doing a Google search on anti-aging, they probably wouldn't find out about all these different things that feature into the whole, the root cause of what actually is leading to uh, um, No, it wouldn't. I mean, there's there's lots of stuff about, um, there's probably stuff now, quite a lot of stuff about what they call senolytics, which is drugs to get rid of the um, senescent cells and so on Um, because that that is a really hot area but what they've managed to do is Richard Farragher who you've mentioned several times he and um, his wife Lizzie Osler and another person I think Lorna Harris down in another university they were working on a drug which can tinker around with the, the senescent cells and what makes them senesce and all this sort of thing and just just tinker around so that you can get rid of some of them or get rid of the ones that you don't want and this sort of thing absolutely brilliant so there are lots of little things coming along in the pipeline yeah. but but not sweep away the whole lot not just you know yeah cleanse your body of senescent cells. Exactly. Yeah, it's almost like you may need to, you'd have to think about how you dose uh, and actually how you intervene and introduce these different chemical compounds. Because like you said, a senolytic, getting rid of every senescent cell in your body is not a good thing. It's almost like you might need to cycle them. Um, And the same thing with calorie restriction and uh, and fasting, people don't really know how to use this as a clinical tool at this point because there are so many different, there are vast different effects depending on the person, their background, the genomic history. Well, absolutely. I mean, the thing, as you'll have found with nutrition, is that it is so difficult to control for because 
that what you eat and, and its, its relationship with exercise and so on, it affects everything in the body. So to actually pinpoint what's gone in and where it's gone and what effects it's had is so, so difficult. So, so yes, so the, these, are, these are really, really difficult areas of science. But what they're trying to do with the senolytics, I mean, with the um, calorie restriction, is find some sort of drug which they can use instead of yeah. um, restricting calories. But I mean, you know, to a certain extent, I'm sure it could be useful. I'm sure it would be very useful, but it also seems like the lazy way around. You, know? <laughs> you can eat, you can eat all these cream cakes, and you can you can pig out, and then just take a pill, and it'll sort out your nutrient sensing mechanism or whatever. Yeah, it's one of the mechanisms by which I think resveratrol is purported to work, right, as being a calorie restriction mimetic. Yes, I think yes. it's, uh, as it's described, and I think earlier on it was thought not to have. Uh, efficacy, but now there's a resurgence in the research that's actually proving, you know what, it could actually yeah. mimic calorie restriction to the point where it could be a supplement to take. Yeah. And I know a lot of people uh, prior to the research actually, you know, being founded and actually saying definitively, yes, it might have a use and most people uh, are using it. Um, and perhaps safely, I'm not too sure what the side effects are of a uh, uh, high dose of resveratrol, um, but you certainly can't get it from uh, dry peanuts and wine no. in the doses <laughs> no. that we're talking about. And, about, and, right? and, and dark chocolate. <laughs> yeah, and dark chocolate as well, yeah. That brings us on to, so the, the, the difference in um, what clinical effect there is, is based on your, your culture, your ethnicity. Um, and you described that a bit in the uh, discussion around Alzheimer's and inflammation. So there's that, the community of Tismane, I think they're called? The, 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 the Somani, the Somani people in, in, I think it's the Bolivian Amazon. Mm. Um, absolutely fascinating because yes they found i mean the brain and alzheimer's is still a huge black box i mean they've uh, as i was saying earlier they've made huge advances in understanding the brain and knowing what the brain does but there's still huge bits of the jigsaw missing and so we haven't really uh, got to the bottom of alzheimer's but what they found they have found that there are risk factor genes and there's one called apoe e4 um, and we have APOE, several versions of that, and e, there's E2 and E3 and E4. E4 is the bad one, and they reckon that um, increases the risk of Alzheimer's, I think, up to 12 times or something. It's quite a nasty one. But this is, and they found, you know, this is where it suddenly, they suddenly realised that their research has been focused on white males, yes. not so much on women, not so much on other ethnic groups, and they found among the Somani, it's actually protected against Alzheimer's they found this or against de dementias of any sort they found the same that it's got a, very much an ethnic thing they found the same doesn't have the same risk factors in or the risk um, profile in um, Nigeria yes. so all kinds of things which is really fascinating so they looked back and they thought well what is this all about and they reckoned that this gene might also because one message that has to come across is that one gene doesn't do one job Absolutely. genes um, can do so many different jobs. They can produce so many, depending on where they switched on and when they switched off and all that sort of thing. They've got lots of roles. And so you look at one and you say, like with P53, this is a tumor suppressor. It's doing lots of other things as well. And um, APOE4 is doing a lot more than just increase your risk for Alzheimer's. And one of the things they find is that it's probably very good for if you've got 
um, interstitial parasites and that sort of thing. It's protective against those kind of things. So that's why it's persisted in some of these communities. So there's all kinds of really interesting things. So it makes them realize that you, you need to um, broaden your research base of who you're doing the research in. Who, and yeah, women, there's a gender effect yeah. and there's a, an age effect and there's an um, ethnic background effect in a lot of these things. Yeah, there's definitely like an underrepresentation across the board with different ethnic backgrounds. And that, you know, if we didn't do research that we wouldn't understand or find out about the Nigerian paradox, which I find mm. fascinating. And I think, you know, just labeling APOE4 as an allele that we know is bad. It's again, it's, it appeals to that sort of reductionist mentality Absolutely. that we need to get rid of in science. And it's one of the things that's quite dangerous when people have their genomes read. Yes. You know, somebody yeah. will come along and say, oh, my God. I got APOE4, yeah. um, I'm at such and such a risk. And it's not quite as simple as that. It really isn't. It's not, it's not you know, as mostly your genes are not your destiny. They're, they're, they may play a very big role. There are certain genes like the um, familial Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's that runs in families, the hereditary type, that does seem to be it is your destiny. If you have the mutant gene or the, um, the, the, that ver version of the amyloid precursor protein, the APP gene, mm -hmm. then you know, you're going to get it at some point, which is pretty sad. And there are one or two genes that really are nasty like that. But most of the time, it's, it's not your destiny. There's lots of little things can be done to yes, uh, change it. There's, I think there's only, there's around 100 or so uh, genetic mutations that definitely lead to a phenotype, so a physical attribution of the genetic makeup that you have that will essentially determine the deterministic mm -hmm. genes. Whereas there are, I don't know how many, but there are plenty more SNPs yeah. or single polynucleotide um, uh, polymorphisms rather um, that will lead to variants that in some cases you can change with your environmental uh, influences yes, as yes. well that's under your control. Um, one of the things that uh, you talked about, I think, in the book, um, which, I, which I need to educate myself on more, is um, the environment and the impact of pollution and how that may play into the Alzheimer's story as well. Um, what do you make of the environmental pollutant story? And do you think we should be, because I, I keep on getting asked about masks, especially oh, in urban goodness, areas. Yes, yeah. Yes. What, what do you make of that? Well, uh, it's 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 a it's a really difficult one. I I can't bear masks. You know, this is where this is where one sort of natural sort of um, reactions to things comes in. But I think um, it's it's very persuasive the the research on pollutants because, as I say, they 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 know what the pathology of Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's the, is the much the most common dementia of old age or much the most common dementia of degeneration of the brain. Um, and we know what the pathology looks like. And you've got these, you know, amyloid plaques and you've got these tau tangles. The pathology is very obvious. But there was a time when people thought, well, one or other of those is what's killing the, the neurons. Now, they're not so sure because they've tried clearing out both of them and trying stopping them happening and it doesn't seem to make that much difference. Or they've um, done autopsies on people um, 
post yeah post mortems on people and found their brains absolutely clogged with it and they were absolutely crystal clear in life. Yeah, yeah. So the there's nun all these that you mentioned the in nun, the story. Yes, yeah, there's a wonderful yeah. story about a nun mm, in the book. Yes, mm. who was really I can't remember what her name was, Sister Sarah or something. Yeah. But she had this really crystal brain and she was very old when she died and her brain was absolutely clogged with amyloid. Um, and some people say no, the amyloid and the and the tau are uh, they're like tombstones. They mark the place where neurons have died, but they're not what killed the, the neurons. On the other hand, with familial Alzheimer's, where um, it is a gene which is producing the amyloid, there's quite clearly a very close connection between the two. So they, there's really still lots and lots of debate about this. Yeah. The pollution thing, I think it's very persuasive. I really do, because we're, they're still looking for all kinds of things that might be um, causing this. And I went to see this lovely uh, guy who got involved in gerontology when there really was the field. I said to him, when did you enter the field? He said, my dear, there wasn't a field when I came into it. <laughs> I am the field. I was the field. <laughs> and he's an eminent neuroscientist in the University of Southern California. And he was the one who's been doing the studies with the Somani people, with a bunch of other people who also looking at, because they, they, there's all kinds of diseases they're not suffering from that we do. I think their hearts are very strong as well, and their immune systems are very strong because they're quite an isolated community. But um, Tuck Finch was looking at those and he's done a lot of research and he reckons that air pollution, um, small particles, not just, mostly actually it is, um, it's from vehicles, vehicle exhaust and that sort of thing, and uh, power stations and those sort of things, tiny particles. They reckon that those can actually get in through the nose, through, there's a, there's a gap in the, um, blood-brain barrier at that point, that it can get into the brain there. And there's lots of evidence that that is important. Some of the evidence has come, again, from lovely stories. They're not such lovely stories. But th they found in Mexico City, where uh, there's terrible, terrible pollution, quite a number of people were finding that their dogs had signs of dementia. They were getting disorientated or, um, yes, you know, really showing signs of being quite befuddled. And they reckon they found signs of a lot of the same sort of things as Alzheimer's in their brains. And they reckoned a lot of that was pollution. So they've been looking at that. And Tuck Finch has been doing experiments with uh, mice. And they've been taking the exhaust from vehicles trundling past on the highway outside the university and putting it in aerosol things and then subjecting mice to this. And they found it's, it's pretty impressive. He reckons something like 50% of the risk of Alzheimer's could be um, particulate matter, could be pollution. WHO now reckons that one in 14 cases of Alzheimer's might be caused by smoking, because smoking is another aspect yes. of this. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of persuasive evidence. But, you know, I don't think those little masks that people wear are, can, are, can handle that stuff. Yeah. It's the ones with, you know, it's the sort of gas masks people wore during the war. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, so like, these little cloth things around the face things, aren't yeah. going to do it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting asked about, you know, the use of those face masks for viruses in general. And I, I, there isn't enough evidence that I can see that it's actually going to have a meaningful effect. Well, why, why, I, what I keep wondering is why do surgeons wear them and why do doctors wear them and their hair nets and so on? So What's... certainly surgeons, when you're talking or anything, the, the spittle and the airborne. Okay, sort of so it's can. protecting the person rather than... When you're in front of someone whose abdomen is open or whatever and you're in a sensitive um, area, then I can, that's uh, just an infection control policy. 
Um, okay, so it's nothing to do with air pollution and that sort no, of thing. No, no, nothing to do with that. Mm. <laughs> but it doesn't stop people doing it. Um, but but I think it is important. This, you know, th this thing about um, uh, exhaust fumes is 100%. pretty important. And, and this is where, like, uh, I, I'm not pro extension, extension rebellion, and some of their. Um, some of their actions and stuff, but they are bringing to attention a really, really important uh, story. Uh, and to my knowledge, I understand that Oxford Street in the middle of London is one of the most polluted roads in the whole of Europe. And we exceeded the CO2 or the, the, the environmental pollutant level, I think in January or February of 2019, we exceeded the whole 12 month limit. And that, for me, it's is, horrific. It's, it's horrific. It is horrific. And we need to be a lot more. And we, we, you know, we can't regulate ourselves. If you have a car and you need to get somewhere, you're going to, you know, you're going to have a car in central London, unless you know you impose things like taxes and charges and stuff like that. So I think it's definitely a conversation. And well, well I mean, for, for one of the things that, that one of the messages that comes out of it, I would say, is you know, when you there was a time when kids used to go to school holding hands of mums and dads or whatever, sometimes on their bicycles. But too often now you find cars idling outside the playground. And that really should be a no-no. It's like, it's like people smoking. People don't smoke any longer. So there's a lot of tiny little things people can do which aren't mega changes to their um, habits. But they're, if, if they're aware of it and if they're aware of what a, a little child passing by, particularly one in a pushchair, gets a face full of exhaust, yeah. It's not good at all. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm, so there's lots of those kind of little messages. Oh, totally. I'm, I'm actually going to start populating my lounge with house plants because I know that they uh, they have been shown to sort of oh, absorb really? some environmental pollutants. Yeah. Oh, I need that's to interesting. Do, I'm trying to get actually someone to um, have a conversation about that on the podcast because I think there is a lot that we can do with small little tricks and, and mm. things like that. So yeah, that'd be brilliant. Lastly, I wanted to talk about. <laughs> well, there's so many other things that I, I think we could talk about. But you, um, you uh, met with Dale Bredesen, who yes. uh, is, a, is a colleague. I've met him a couple of times in the sort of uh, functional medicine community. I think his. Um, he his, was the guy who was the head of the Buck Institute. At oh, one he point. was. Yes, there you go. And he was the one that Ram Rao spoke to, and he was one of the people who didn't say to Ram, "You know, you're barking mad. This is all your Eastern yeah. um, nonsense sort of stuff." Yeah. And he listened, and he went. He read Rao's books and was bowled over. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I think his wife uh, or partner, I think she practices with that sort of Ayurvedic uh, yeah. mindset, even though she's commercially trained as well. Um, he, again, was someone who's like a hard-lined 40-year career history of being a you know conventional neuroscientist who's now come to realize that Alzheimer's and perhaps even aging on a grander level has multiple factors that we need to consider when it comes to treatment. And we can't think of this, you know, singular paradigm of one symptom or one illness and one set of treatments that's, is actually looking that, at that the whole thing. That has to be one of the really biggest messages that comes out of this whole field. And it's a very strong message in my book. It really just rises out of the book. That that's absolutely so. Absolutely. And so from, from everything that you've sort of gathered over the extensive I mean, I must have taken you. How long did it take you, actually? This it didn't take a hell of a long time. Really? I mean, I, when I work on these things, I just put my head down and I get mega fascinated by it. And then Ferocious. I think it took me two years. <laughs> two years? Okay, yeah. well, that, that's a long time oh, for me. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> that's a long time. Yes, it wasn't a few months. <laughs> yeah. um, out of everything that you've learned, what do you think 
about those two questions that I asked you at the start. So is, you know, uh, aging, um, is it a narcissistic endeavor? Uh, and is lifespan plastic? And if so, what can we do about it? Okay, is it a narcissistic endeavor? I think um, it absolutely isn't a narcissistic endeavor. And I think we've got to forget that side of things. There's certainly that um, there are a lot of people who actually are really interested in um, pushing the limits and uh, living for, you know, maybe five centuries or whatever. The immortalists and also the transhumanists who think that maybe we can download our brains into computers, get rid of these pesky bodies and so on. That is the sort of lunatic fringe, but there are a lot of people doing that. And if that's your your thing, then, you know, you can run with it. But And that I do find narcissistic because we've got too many people in the world already. It has massive implications for everything for the dynamics within families for um who's going to you know working environment resources everything so i do find that narcissistic and particularly because you know having done the traveling i've done around the world there are so many other things that need fixing in this world people who are starving people who are terribly poor and all of this sort of stuff and drought and so much that we could put our very good scientific minds towards. So I think that just to look at, oh, I don't like the idea of dying, I must preserve myself. I find that really off turning. But the search for um, increased health span, I think is absolutely massive, not just important, it's vital. We can't any longer afford the cost of the NHS, the cost, we don't know how to care for everybody, we just don't. So the more we can do to keep all of us are ourselves healthy right up to the last few years, hopefully, and independent. That has to be just a wonderful thing. It really does. Yeah. And certainly it's something I want. And you say, is, is it going to be possible? Um, yes, there's massive amount. One of the things, um, the genetic studies have been fascinating. They have tinkering around with these genes. They've shown that you can do a massive amount. The, I think the biggest message that comes out of that is not, oh, we've also got age one and Foxo and all this sort of thing and, and DAF2, we can do things with them. What those res that research says is this is something which is malleable. It's plastic, as they say yes. in inverted commas. You can do something about it. So with that knowledge, then it's really important to try and do something. And as I say, Richard and his colleagues and a whole lot of people are getting, getting places with helping to clear away the... Um, excess senescent cells. But another very big thing, you know, this exercise thing is hugely important. And one of the things I found interesting was there's, and this is again a lovely little story, in our bloodstream, one of the first responders in our immune system when something is wrong in the body is your neutrophils and they're going around in your, in your um, blood system. And they hear, ding, 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 there's something wrong. There's a, there's a microbe on board. So they literally push their way between the cells and they go off to find this thing and um, engulf it and that's it. Um, and then they call, call in all sorts of other players in the immune system. Well, as you get older, these things lose their sense of direction and they go blundering around, where did I hear that? Where did I hear that? Literally making trouble for things. And the lovely thing is, I, I gave a presentation the other day and I looked up, up and I found this on the internet, a picture of a neutrophil coming out of the bloodstream and going to find a, a, a microbe and engulfing it. Oh, and I thought this is absolute Christmas. So, you know, and that's happening in our bodies the whole time. But as we get older, they get bad at doing this thing. But what they found is that 
So our immune systems are getting elderly. What they find is sitting, sedentariness is really, really bad because our immune systems, are, um, sedentary muscles, muscles that aren't moving, keep on pushing out little triggers to the immune system pro-inflammatory signal saying, come here, come here, come here. Um, even just standing up, putting weight on your muscles counteracts that. It sends anti-inflammatory signals. So you need to be getting up, not sitting at your desk the whole time. And one of the women, the immunologists in um, Birmingham who was discovering all this stuff, she said she goes for a run in the morning before she goes to work. If, and she thinks that's wonderful. If she sits at her desk all day, it completely overrides almost any good she's done. So she was saying, so she's now got herself a standing desk um, because just literally standing at things is important or nipping up to make a cup of coffee or nipping across the corridor to speak to your friends or something. So as I say at the beginning, that what's important, we get all these messages about do this, do this. What I have, was looking for is the explanations and you get the explanations. And it's really changed the way I lead my life, apart from this not eating at the right time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was literally going to be my final question, actually. Are there, apart from, I mean, I use a standing desk. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's over there in the corner. Um, I, uh, I, I've learned a lot about this, this uh, area and just nutrition in general. And I've made some changes to my lifestyle. I eat largely plant-based. I have a general eating window. Um, a so few what time things. do you finish? What time do you have your supper then? At night? I try to uh, have it at like six or seven. And then I leave at least like a two or three hour gap before going to bed um, if I can. But that doesn't stop me on a Friday or Saturday if I'm going out to dinner with friends and we're going at 8 p.m. I'm, oh, I'm not going to eat. No, no. <laughs> like, I so think, you're, you're not one of those e no, evangelicals. I'm not an evangelist. <laughs> and I don't think people should be because I think part of the enjoyment of life is Absolutely. actually having a dinner with your friends, you Absolutely. know. And this can get a bit all encompassing sometimes. It can. Well, that's that. The, the crony community can get can be a bit a bit <laughs> yeah. tough, but but the guy I interviewed was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, on your two year journey of researching this, and obviously your P fifty three book as well, that I'll make sure I link in the podcast notes. Um, what other things have? What are the main things that you've changed? I think uh, I, I I take a lot of exercise anyway. I think I think the the eating thing has been very persuasive. Uh, yeah, I think I've just I think I've just got more disciplined about these things. You know, I, I, I sometimes you just think to yourself, oh, catch the bus. But, um, you know, I got very used to because I love walking. I got very used to factoring in how long it was going to take me to get places because I much prefer to be out. I'm, you know, I'm not very good at sitting still, even though I've sat still I for know, this hour. Right, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this re-release of the Doctor's Kitchen podcast episode with Sue Armstrong, all about longevity. Remember, you can buy her book, Borrowed Time, The Science of How and Why We Age in All Good Bookstores and Online. And remember, you can sign up to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter where I send you every week a recipe to eat, something to listen to, something to read, and something to help you live a healthier, happier week. I will see you here next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 